Welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast with your host, Big Ken, a retired teacher bringing you lessons each week he's learned in the hobby by taking you behind the table and inside the mind of a dealer and a collector. Sit back and relax. There won't be a test. The only thing being graded here is the cards. Welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Big Ken. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on a streaming service, please like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell. You'll be notified whenever I drop any new content. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Super excited for today's episode. Uh, someone I've been talking with for a while about getting him on the pod. Uh, and happy today is finally the day. Today he's here. Uh, please welcome Jonathan, a.k.a. Basketball Card Guy. Jonathan, welcome, and thanks for being here. How's it going? <laughs> Good to see you, Ken. Glad to finally be on. It's been a long time yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see each other now. We start to see each other at all the shows now, right? Uh, <laughs> out, out, out and about. Yeah, Trumbull. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, any show yeah. in Connecticut, I feel like I run into you at, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I first met you. I don't know if you remember. I met you at the Basketball Hall of Fame. We were we were on a panel. We did a yep. panel up there uh, before uh, before the trade night uh, at the Basketball Hall of Fame. And, and I remember, uh, you know, talking with you afterwards and, you know, just listening to your long list, you know, your your deep resume of all the things and all, all the things you do in the hobby and outside the hobby and media. And I was like, oh, my God, music. Right. I was like, oh, my God. How, how have I never heard of this guy before? And now, now it's, you know, you've seen the work. You just didn't know it was me behind it. I didn't know it was you behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we'll start first, uh, you know, the name, right. Basketball card guy is genius. You know, it, it, you, when you really think about it and, and I'm sure, uh, you know, the hobby gave you that name. It's not like you had to. So most of us coming up with our Instagram and our this and our that, we're like, oh, what's it going to be? What's going to be so cool? And yeah. you're probably like, well, everybody calls me the basketball card guy. So <laughs> how can I go wrong? <laughs> no, it's totally true. But I so when I started my Instagram back in 2014, I think my original name was NBA Trader. So I was trading NBA cards, you know. And I, you know, I started using that name. I made a banner. I set up it at shows in Connecticut with it. And I just started to worry. I'm like, what if the NBA gets mad at me? I'm like, did, did they ever come calling? And no, they, they I, and I wasn't like a big fish at all. You know, like people knew me that had known me for years collecting, but like I wasn't, I wasn't in any kind of big circles at that point. And so I just thought, you know what? maybe I don't need to, I don't need to knock on their door that way. You know, like let's not push my luck. Um, let me come up with a different name. And it's exactly what you said, Ken, like literally everyone at these shows that were seeing my, were seeing my booth, they all called me the basketball card guy. And the reason for that, not only am I passionate about basketball card collecting, if you know me, but the thing that was just so apparent from minute one of coming to my booth was I did not have a single card that wasn't a basketball card every other person you know this going to shows every other person in a show is going to have a variety basically because that's traditionally smart <laughs> you know, like having a variety is good diversification is good um you know and, and a lot of people like a lot of different sports and different players and different things so when you came to my booth 
you literally only saw basketball cards. So it was almost a derogatory kind of like term for a while. People were like, oh, there's that idiot, the basketball card guy. <laughs> only got basketball cards. What a moron. Like that's how it was almost treated. But I took it on. I said, that is yeah. what I am. I that, This is exactly, this is what I collect. This is what I love. Uh, and that's why that's all I have. Yeah. Yeah. And that was it. There was never any other sport from, from day one. It was basketball Yeah, at the shows. That's all I ever set up with. I collect yeah. like some celebrity stuff like this whole case here is like celebrity autographs and things like that. I've collected that kind of stuff for years. I'll collect the goats, you know, like I have a Tom Brady autograph. I've got a Wayne Gretzky autograph. I've got a bunch of Derek Jeter stuff now after working with arena club. Like I, I do like collect other things outside, but when it comes to like the shows and my kind of outward brand, it's all basketball. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I, I feel whatever I see now, now that I know you, I see photos or, you know, videos of cele at celebrity signings or these, these, you know, intimate, you know, meet and greets with professional athletes, you know, or even courtside stuff. I always see there you are, you're, you're in somebody else's picture all the time. So, so I, I asked the question and, and I know this from following you on Instagram, how does that 14 year old kid working at the L LCS in Mount Kisco, New York, yes. end up in, in, in such small circles? Just talk to me a little bit about that journey. You just keep doing what you love. You know, I, I know the phrase, you know, keep doing what you love. You don't work a day in your life if that's what you're doing. And it's true. And the hobby has been a part of my life since I was that kid, you know, since even before that, since my dad gave me baseball cards when I was eight or nine years old, he gave me his collection with some mantles and Gehrig's and, you know, all these all these legends in baseball. They didn't resonate with me for their playing because I never saw Mickey Mantle playing, but they resonated with me because they were cool. They were collectible. My dad loved them when he was growing up. And so when I found out that I could have basketball cards, like the same kind of things that he was collecting about his favorite sport, I could do with mine. It was amazing. And so starting there and just continuing and not stopping, you know, like a lot of folks talk about, they took the break, you know, for 20 years or, you know, kind of put this stuff away. I never did. I got enjoyment out of it from the moment I started to today. Um, when I get something in the mail or I find something at a show, I get excited about it, you know, like it's a highlight of my day. Um, so I think it's just authenticity. I think that they're, you know, over the years, um, when I started in that store, actually, a friend of mine and I both went in. We had seen the store on day one. It opened and they were looking to hire. Um, they asked both of us to come back the next uh, the next week to come in and, and start the job. My friend skipped out on it, decided he didn't really want to, you know, pop in that day and I showed up. <laughs> so I ended up night managing at that store for like three years, um, you know, and having the responsibilities. I never took home a paycheck. I spent every last cent in the store, um, but I got a lot of experience. I got to learn a lot about the industry. I got to see how the, distrib uh, the distributors worked even back then, which were a lot smaller than they are now in terms of yeah. Like we didn't have the GTSs and the Southern hobbies that 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 store was interacting with. They were, you know, really working with with local guys who were buying directly from, you know, Upper Deck and Fleer and stuff like that and, and getting it out. So it's just about doing it and it's about doing everything you do in a quality way. I don't half ass anything. Um, people that look years back, uh, I did a, a big April Fool's joke called Grading Company. Um, you can still see the website gradingco.com, gradingco.com. And um, 
I came up with my own grading company on April Fool's Day, claimed that you could scan cards with your phone to get the grades, and then you could self-encapsulate said cards by putting them in this interesting patent-pending sleeve and then putting it in boiling hot water. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, a lot of people thought it was real. Um, you know, I've got a thousand people sign up wanting advanced access to this new profound grading. Um, you know, claimed it was made out of a space grade resin, that it was bulletproof, all sorts of stuff that was just crazy, over the top, unnecessary. Um, but I built the website. I worked with Darren Rovell um, to do an interview. We did a video interview on the release of it. The timing was perfect. PSA shut down like two or three days before this came out, before April Fool's Day. So it looked like it could totally be real. Like this new yeah. grading company opens it. You don't have to mail your cards anywhere, which has always been my thing. Like, that's probably the single thing that holds me back from grading is that I don't want to let go of my prized possessions, especially yeah. not to the mail. <laughs> Ship back and yeah. forth. I just feel like something's going to happen. So yeah. this kind of took all of the things that were amazing and I really would love, like I dreamed about having in, in a card grading company, and it put it all together in one and then wrapped it around in a joke, you know, like boiling your cards. No one's going to do that. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, but it went around the internet, you know, Darren shared on his Twitter to his 2 million followers. We had 40,000 people, you know, visiting the website that I made in that one day. Um, you think about like how crazy that is, but people still, I, I met someone at Bleecker Trading a week ago who said, you know what I really love? Oh man, I still think that was that grading company thing you did years ago. This <laughs> person I met for the first time is bringing that up, you know, still. Yep. So if you do everything in a quality way, I always say like people recognize it. And even though that was a joke, um, there were a number of people that reached out to me at that point, investors. There were there was millions of dollars of investment capital on the table for that company before people realized <laughs> it wasn't actually real. It was like crazy. But those folks have come back to me and said, look, we want to work with you on other things. Like if you yeah. can market something that well, you demonstrated your ability in this joke that you could do things in reality that would really help our real companies. Yeah. And yeah. You know, put your best foot bring, forward every day. You bring, never in views, bring in the yeah, views and, and, and bring in people in. Sure. I, yeah. I hear people probably tripping over themselves to, to get you onto their, the marketing and media. And that's my, you know, that's my sweet spot, you know, a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I, I joined a group early on in its existence. I joined a company called Knox N O X X, which, about a year later, actually sold to Beckett. Um, and that was my introduction into Beckett as well, is that the sale of that company. Um, but Knox is a collection management tool. It's going to have a new kind of release as Beckett collects shortly, hopefully soon. They're integrating a lot of the Beckett data now into it. Um, but I came on as the chief collecting officer. I was the chief collector there. You know, I was the guy that, you know, knew about collecting, but also knew about technology and also knew about marketing. So when we're talking about building out the product, I was the guy that was always able to raise the hand and say, hey, wait, we have to think about this because this is how a collector is going to use it. Um, yeah. For folks that have been in a startup before, for folks that have just dealt with anyone that builds a website or technology, or you work with people overseas on any of that stuff, um, you can very easily take it for granted. Like they may be a great coder, the person you're working with, they can do code expertly, but they if they don't understand the product, they don't understand what it is that that thing's going to do or the audience it's going to serve. Yep. You lose it all. You know, it doesn't work. Yep. Um, and so that was my role there was just really keeping things geared around like what is the end product? Who are the people we're serving? 
Um, and so, like I said, a lot of these things, one thing leads to another. You put your best foot forward. You you know you make sure that that every piece is a portfolio piece. Everything you do. Um, and so when people say, "Hey, who did that?" and <laughs> points yeah. back to me. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, nothing half-assed, right? <laughs> exactly right. Yep. So I I know you work with a a bunch of other companies working on on different things that are in the hobby. Who who are you working with now? What kind of things you doing? Anything like you just talked about Beckett coming out with some stuff? Anything else that we can kind of look forward to? Uh, I've been working a lot with Arena Club, and so they are a combination grading marketplace vaulting service. Um, they've got some revolutionary things in terms of the grading. They use AI and human grading combined. Um, and so when you look at the grading report, you're it's going beyond where, um, you know, kind of Beckett established decades ago this, this notion of subgrades, that you can mm -hmm. see the four main subgrades, the four things that go into the grade of your card. Um, Arena Club's taking a step further. They have heat maps on the card itself to show you exactly where there are issues, where there are flaws. So if the card gets a nine as a surface subgrade, with Beckett, um, you you wonder, okay, well, why why did it get that? You know, where, where, was, where, nine, where was the deficiency? Oh, yeah, exactly. And with Arena Club, you go on and you can click on uh, surface as that nine subgrade, and it will highlight the area or areas on the card that have the issue. So you can mm -hmm. zoom right and you can zoom right and you can pinch zoom on your phone and see, oh, yeah, there is a little tiny dot there or a little scratch. Um, some people might be angered by it because it's like, well, it's so finicky. Like, why are you guys looking at such a tiny little thing and, and deducting? But you know what? It's full transparency. You know, at least you're seeing why it is. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's great. They've they've done a lot on that. And now they've got their own things called slab packs, which is their kind of answer to repacks where they're taking a whole slew of cards they're showing you the totality of what you can get in a repack product and then you can buy a repack that either has like two three or five cards i believe in each pack but you see the hundred cards you can pull out of that two card pack you see them all before you buy it and so you can look at it make an educated decision well would i be happy with any two of these is what i would ask myself you know like yeah. look down at the bottom tier like if i got these two would i be happy with spending you know the 50 dollars on that would that be okay um, so you get to see that. And as cards are pulled, they're removed and then new ones come in and replace them in that thing. So if you look right now and you go, no, there's nothing that really interests me. You can come back three hours later and now there is. So it's yep. kind of always moving, but always transparent. I love that fact. Hmm. The other thing that's kind of neat is they they're doing something that I've long said. Um, they're doing redemptions and redemptions, as we know, in the, in the hobby is a very bad word. And I tell people, like, I even told them when they first started, I'm like, ah, you might not want to call it redemptions because people don't <laughs> like redemptions. Um, but they're doing redemptions exactly the way that I've always said they should be done. And that's if you get a redemption, it's not because the card didn't have a chance to be signed and it's kind of a lazy way of just, oh, here, redeem it later. Maybe three years from now, we'll mail it to you. No, no, no. It's for something that doesn't fit in a pack. That's where I think redemption should go. Yeah. It makes me think back to like Fleer, the diamond ink points back in the late 90s. You collected 500 points. You mailed it into Fleer. They sent you an autographed mini basketball. I have a bunch of them on the other side of this wall. That was one of my favorite things. I've, I have one of the Kobe's actually from that set too. Like wow. just incredible, right? Like you could get an autographed ball from Kobe Bryant. It doesn't fit in the pack, but you got it because of the pack. 
Yep. Love that idea. And that's what Arena yeah. Club's doing now as well. I think they just announced that their latest slab pack that's going to be coming out, there's a chance at a Michael Jordan autographed shoe. I mean, like, where else are you wow. going to get that in a pack of cards? Like a full-size yeah. shoe autographed by Jordan. You know, like... Yeah amazing so and they've of course they i have, guess that i guess if that was in the pack we'd know which one which pack it was in right no right. need to weigh it or or, or or fondle it at all right we know yeah. exactly which what one is this? <laughs> totally but they they gave away a trip to the super bowl in a pack they've been giving away jeter autograph stuff they're really looking at it as that this pack is not just a way to get cards but it's a way to let you have greater experiences whether it be like physically going somewhere and having that experience or getting a really great piece of memorabilia that you're going to love in your collection so it's just awesome it's just awesome yeah yeah i know you talked uh we talked a little bit before you had mentioned uh you're doing some work with the national yes yes so they they reach i had done a bunch of work in the past nationals with booth design i did some stuff with beckett i did their video screens a couple of years ago if people remember um back in chicago when uh, actually no back in atlantic city was that one when they had these huge 20 foot by 10 foot video walls so i did all of the programming behind that like creating that visual that was going on 24 7 there um and then of course i work with roadshow cards i'm their branding manager i have been since uh the the company started I actually created the brand here in connecticut um jimmy from kentucky she flew up we created it in my office um, and so I designed out their booth last year at the national, which is a really cool experience as well. You could see all four of their stores. They got a store in New York. They have a store in Kentucky, one in Dallas and one in California. And it's the one time the way I designed this, I said, I want it to be the one time a year that you're in walking distance of all the stores. You can literally walk from one to another to another, and you have that experience within. So it was this big kind of circle in the center that created this kind of square that you could walk to each store. You see a mm -hmm. video screen that lets you into the store to see it, a showcase in front, and then the people that manage the stores right in front. So you literally were feeling like you were in it. Yeah. Um, and so the folks at the National, they very swift at what they do, right? So they did surveys, they did things, they had people going around doing research. They handed out these sheets at the last national and the ones before that, I'm, I'm assuming as well, asking like, what do you think of the booth? Does it does it uh, achieve the goals that, that it's looking for? Does this really promote well, especially in the corporate section? They really want to see, they want to create an, an uplifting experience. And so what they told me was a lot of these ones where they saw something that they really liked, it was a booth that I was involved with. Um, something that I had done. And so they said this year, they reached out and they said, look, we want to create a cool lobby experience for this year's national in Cleveland. Um, and we love you to be a part of that. And so I flew out to Cleveland with the management team last week, saw the whole space. It's actually a really nice venue, um, really tall ceilings, uh, beautiful layout. It's much more of a boxy layout than Chicago was. So one thing that drives me nuts about Chicago, I love Chicago. I love the location. I love the yeah. fact that the hotels are there. Yeah. But the venue, how much they've expanded throughout, it's just yeah. very hard to figure out where you are. Yeah, it's You're always like, lost. Yeah, always right. Like you walk yeah. in this door and then somehow you come out this door and you're like, how did that happen? How do I go from there and then end up over here? Like it's strange. And, and the numbers up top, that that's what I remember last year about Chicago, those banners hanging. It's like, it's like, okay, so if that number is there and I'm looking for this, it should be that way. And I get down there and, and, it's and I'm not. like 10,000 numbers different. And I'm like, wait a minute, what happened? How, how, did, how did I get here? 
Yeah. Exactly. So that gets solved with having a space that's much more of a rectangle, which is what what Cleveland is. So I think a lot of people will be happy about that. It is a little bit smaller of a venue, though, than Chicago was when you combined out all of those other spaces in Chicago. So there will be less tables overall. But I think that the experience is going to be heightened. I really like the venue. I really like the look of it um, there. And so, yeah, I'm in the planning stages with them now. I got to see the space, got to meet with some of the corporates that were there uh, as well. And just trying to plan out that experience to really kind of, um, you know, bring it in from the moment you walk in the door, just feeling like, yes, this is this is the show that people come to from all around the world every year. This is the one that yeah. they care about and just making people yeah. feel that. Yeah. And you want to make it spectacular, right? I mean, as over the top as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. How, how, how many years have you been going to the national when, when, uh, did, it's when almost did you start? 10 now? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I skipped a couple in the middle, but I've been going for about 10 years now. I think my, the first national mm -hmm. was almost 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago. So, and, and was it always as a spectator? Did you ever set up? I never set up. I never set yeah. up. It's hard to break through. Um, and that's one of the things that I think that they'll, and we'll see what happens, right? We'll see what happens. Cause we had this insane inflow, um, you know, of people in the last few years that I think have made it harder. And it, obviously, and they've expanded like the Chicago venue, they never used that much space of it before. So yeah. like, we're really looking at some of the biggest square footage spaces mm -hmm. that the nationals yeah. ever had. And the other piece too, to realize that when Cleveland was booked, when this venue was booked, cause a lot of people are asking like, why? Why would you move from a space that's larger last year to a space that's smaller this year when there was so much demand last year? Like people that wanted a table couldn't even get a table last year. Why would you move to a smaller venue? People don't realize like they booked these venues so far in advance, like three years in advance. So Cleveland was booked before the boom. So yeah. and, you know, and now in the next three years, you know, looking at the following year and then the two years after that we're going to be in Chicago. The national will be back in Chicago for three years straight. Yep. Um, you know, based on that, that last vote that was made, they, they, they go back and they usually, they do Chicago every other year, but the middle year now was voted to be in Chicago as well. by all the folks that uh, yeah. were, were getting their tables. So, and, and, um, and interestingly enough, if you took a whole other Chicago, right, the whole size and you put it right next to that one, right. And you opened up some, some door there. You'd sell all those tables out too, right? There'd you probably would. still be a waiting list. Yeah, it's just such an enormity. And talking with the guys that that you know that run this show now, it, it's amazing because, like, again, I don't think people throw stuff out there. You know, you got culture collision coming up. Obviously, you're going to that, right? You're I, am. That. I am. So, like, I'm not going to be there, but it, like, what an incredible looking show. But you hear people asking about Atlanta, like, why isn't it in Atlanta? Why isn't it in Las Vegas? Why can't we get it in California? And in a lot of cases, they just don't have venues that are large enough yep. to hold it, you know. And then the second part of it in an organizational stance is that we, I mean, this is the biggest thing in sports conventions for sure. But we are not the biggest thing in conventions. You know, like I've worked in media for years. NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, is the largest broadcast event. It happens once a year. It happens in Las Vegas. And it happens that they're gigantic. It takes over the entire Las Vegas Convention Center, which is like a mile long. Yeah. Um, that venue is all sorts of different buildings. And the National wants to be in one contiguous space. Las Vegas doesn't have, as big as Vegas is, like doesn't have a contiguous space that can really 
do what the national wants. And these other cities that people talk about, like, let's go to California or let's go over here. Same deal. They don't have a space that's large enough to contain everything that needs to go on. Yeah. You know, because that would really, that would just be really overkill for any city, right? You think of a space, space that big, who's going to be filling it besides like this once a year type of once a year. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and, and the other piece of it is, these shows like these like the nabs and those kinds of things they come back to the same spot every single year and so that venue can put in place a five or ten year contract and that's what they want to do they don't want to hear oh we're going to come to cleveland this year and then maybe we'll come back to cleveland in four or five years they're not going to get any sort of priority booking in a venue if they're not giving that commitment year after year because most of these other shows they're in the same place every year and that gives you a lot of leverage in booking that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so that's the thing, too. Like when people are like, yeah, in the ideal world, it'd be great if this thing toured and it would be great if there was a giant venue in each town that they could do it in. I mean, I've said for years, J- you know, Jacob Javits Center in New York City. Talk about that's where they do New York Comic Con. That's where they yeah. do the New York Auto Show. That's an awesome venue. But again, it's got different floors. It's not the same kind of space. It's not what the national guys are really looking for. Uh, for an experience so it really limits you know something that big and then this year um there's a vip space if you have a vip badge there's a vip space and i don't know we're still looking at like how it's going to be cordoned off or if it's going to be the full space but there's a fifty thousand square foot space for just the vips to have during the day like while you're at the show if you have a vip badge you can pop down there and relax trade with someone meet up with somebody like that's crazy to think about. Like, but again, that's on top of the show floor. Like, that's an extra fifty thousand square feet. <laughs> yeah. For that. yeah. Like, and, so and is that is that is that in that continuous space or that's a, like that's uh, on a separate update. floor? That space is on a separate floor, but it's it's in the same building. So yeah. like, it's convenient for those folks, but it's not ruining. It's not kind of giving like different priority to to vendors. It's like we're not yeah. throwing some vendors in the basement then, right? Like that's not what it feel like, feels like uh, if you had done that, you know, you're keeping everybody on the same floor in that same space. Yeah, so even playing um, field. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it, so there's a lot of those things that go into that, that planning and there's just a lot of constraints. Yeah. Um, but this year I think it's going to be awesome. Um, I love seeing on that. I, don't, I hope I'm not giving too much away on any of the stuff. I am not trying to speak out of school at all, but um, I see on the map this year, there are food trucks, which is exciting for me in the building like there's going to be a lot and it looks like a nice variety of food uh right there on site which i think is mm-hmm. something that people only think about when they're in the middle of it and you've been at the show for eight hours and you haven't eaten yet and you're like wait yeah. a minute why do i need to leave i don't want to take an uber to go get something to eat like yeah. it'd yeah. be great if they had some nice food and it looks like they will so yeah a lot of and cool like, stuff and like yeah. last year last year if you wanted a coffee i mean you're like when i showed up at chicago i'm like oh wow there's a starbucks inside i can inside. get a coffee every day right and then the yep. next day i show up and there's like a hundred thousand people in line for a coffee i'm like <laughs> oh true. no no yeah, I, had to, I, had, I had to leave yeah yeah i had to leave i had to walk a couple blocks to a hotel buy a coffee and come back because you know, the show I, was going to start and I needed to be set up. Yeah. I just remember trying to get chicken tenders last year at one of the commissary things that they had there. And I went up and there's this long line and people are just shaking their heads on the line. I'm like, it's going to take a while. There were two people at the cashier's spot. These two women, they were sitting there and 
the chef slams something down and goes, that's it. He takes off his apron and he walks or <laughs> quickly out of the space. And I turned to the two girls and I said, you might want to find another place to eat. I don't think he's coming back. And I'm like, is there anyone else back there? And they're like, nope. Oh, well. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, that was it. Yeah. That's it. And then you got to walk half a mile to go find another place to eat. You know, like yeah, it's yeah. crazy. So I think everything that I've seen so far, and again, it took one trip with these guys to see it, to check it out. It looks really cool. The yeah. space is neat. I think they're doing a great job, you know, putting it together. It is a new management team this year, but these are guys that have done great shows. They're responsible for the New York shows, the white Plains. They're yep. responsible for the Philly show, the Chantilly show. Um, so they've got a lot of show experience. So I think they're bringing a, you know, kind of a new flavor to mm -hmm. it as well. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited, very excited for yeah. that this year. Yeah, we had a we did a trade night last year in in, in Chicago, and I know this year we'd been talking about it. But they said we're we're gonna be, we're gonna be holding our own. There's another, yeah. and maybe that VIP room, it may be somewhere else. Yep. But they're saying that they have a space designated to be holding trade nights and, there. So. And I was one of the guys that that helped organize the trade nights for the last two years, the official ones with the national. Another thing that worked on. Uh, Roadshow cards, uh, along with Card Collector 2, have been the kind of official trade night for the last few years. Um, we did it really big last year. We had a, a ballroom that was upstairs in the same building as the national in Chicago. Um, 38,000 square feet that room was. It was crazy. Wow. All ceilings. Um, I think we had over over 6,000 people in the room at one time um, and then another 2,000 or so outside. There was a big lobby that filled up as well. We gave out over 2,000 free T-shirts with the Trade Night logo <laughs> that I'd done. I did the branding for that as well. Um, and it was a great experience. This year, you know, it, it's going to be in it and maybe more than one night, hint, hint. Might not just be one one night anymore that they're doing without saying too much. Um, but, um, but definitely seeing like what we can do there, uh, and you know, with that past experience, like, I think, I think there's a lot that can be done. So, yeah, nice looking, I'm looking forward to it. Have it, you know, it's, it's here. It is January, right? we're, we're excited. <laughs> like, no, nobody wants to mention it too early, but here it is January and we're already excited. Yeah. They start planning it the day after the other one ends. I actually, even before that, but I mean, it's like, it's like, yeah. and I feel like that we, we talk about that. It's kind of like Christmas, right? You know, you, you lead up to the holiday, you get excited for the holiday. And then as soon as it stops, like the kids are thinking again, well, I got to be on my best behavior because Santa might bring me a good gift next year. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. that's I, what the I, national feels like. Yeah. I'll tell you what, this, last year I stayed to the very end. Right. I was we had a booth and we had to stay and, you know, we were backing trucks into we were loading up pallets because we had our stuff shipped out there. So yeah. I stayed to the very end. Right. So it, I'm sitting there uh, with my guy Carmine, you know, at Carmine's cards and 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 we're we're watching and the lights go out. I mean, it ends. The lights go out. The doors open up, trucks just start driving in on the floor and there's just banging and stuff, just stuff is being torn down. Like, you know, when they put it up, it must have been put it up so neatly. And then we yeah. were like, right, we were right across from Beckett where the guy was just grabbing these boards and just taking the boards <laughs> and just throwing them on the ground. I, w I was like getting depressed. Like I was just sitting there watching right. this whole thing come down and just realize that's it. It's over. And we have to wait a whole it's year. Sad. Yeah. The whole year till next year for for this for the excitement for this to happen again. I you I, did I did it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just clearly remember that moment. I was like, probably, probably one of the few times I was really sad in the hobby, watching something come to an end. Watching, watching them, yeah, compress it down. I'm seeing if I can find a video on my phone because I thought this part was interesting and it doesn't give like anything away. Um, this is the backstage area, which is immense. Where this is the backstage area in Cleveland where they're going to have staging and other trucks. This is not part of the show floor. Like get, oh. like take that in how big that is. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is ginormous. So it's going to make it easy for both the corporates and other folks to be able to load in and load out. Cause you've got this mm -hmm. kind of staging zone um, there that's built in. That's not even part of the floor, not even part of the yeah. whole square footage. That's yeah. that's calculated out. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is. It's, it is, it's sad. Like when it, when it ends, um, and I think like for me, and I know it's the same for you, it's it's that it's not just the cards, which I mean, there's incredible stuff. Like if you're going to if you're looking for something in particular, this is the one room you're going to find it in throughout yep. the year. I mean, like your best odds, but it's the people, you know, I go to this to meet up with folks, hang out for the dinners, for the things like and, and I wish there were more nights, honestly, because it's just like I want to go out to dinner with so many different people, you know, and mm -hmm. I want to have yeah. those experiences there. And, you know, everyone's going to be there. Yeah. And that's the best part um, yeah. is really those interactions. I feel like and seeing collections. I've done some of my biggest trades of all time at that show where we plan them out ahead of time. But rather than mailing stuff in the mail, let's do this in person. You know, let, yeah, yeah. let's come out yeah. there and and make it happen there. And, and that's mm -hmm. just so much cooler. So much yeah. cooler. Yeah. And I know you just talked about mailing cards, right? So so it's so so much nicer, especially if it's a big trade, just to go and you know, you want to see touch feel. You don't want to you want to drop those those cards in the mail, especially if it's you know, if it's if, when you're doing a deal with somebody else, it's like and, and I still do this and I buy a big card and I'm like, all right, I'm just I'm gonna take your word now. You've sent me 35 <laughs> pictures, front, backs, corners, right. you, you know, far away. It close up now i'm going to take your word for it and 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 i'm nervous the whole time i'm waiting i'm watching tracking you know showing this thing showing up so yeah i i know what you mean now, like if you could do a deal in person like meet up with somebody somewhere it's it's yeah and you get to see the condition i buy so much stuff raw as you can tell by the back like most yeah. of my cards are raw that that becomes an awkward point too like i tend to trust people way too much and so while I am very good about like notating condition issues, all sorts of things on the cards that I have, I take it for granted that that a lot of people aren't, you know, and, it, and that a lot of folks, you know, like when they, they see my case, it shows, they look at it and they see all these raw cards and they go, are these all grading rejects? It's like, no, they've been in my collection all this time raw because I, yeah, I don't see yeah. the point in grading and I can, I can look with my own two eyes and see that the card is in great condition. Um, yeah. But I, I oftentimes forget that that's what other people do. They grade cards, they break them out, they're grading rejects, and that's why they're trying to sell them raw. Um, and it sucks because I like buying raw cards. So going to a show, that's the one opportunity where I can really do that because I can examine mm -hmm. the card and go, yeah, this guy just did't want to grade it like me. I don't want to grade mm -hmm. the, you know, the cards. It's not the thing yeah. I do with them. I like but, keeping but them. But if you're not if you're not grading the card, right? Yeah. And I know you, 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 you know, you're, you've been doing this for many years and you're going to look at a card and is, is there a part of the card? Like, do you pick up the card and say, well, I could see the dings on the corner, but the centering is great. So I love the card or, or the, this, the, the corners are perfect and the edges are yeah. perfect. 
but the centering's not there. Like centering like, a number one for me. That's the one that has so to you, be. So that that's a reject. That's a that one back. If it's the centering's yep. off, I, I I can't. All right. Yeah. So. I appeal is huge. I appeal. I, I saw a card the other night actually that was a PSA one Jordan rookie. Perfect centering, perfect corners, perfect edges, great color. Okay, so what's wrong? Why is it a one? Had a pinhole. Someone stuck it on a on a board. Oh. <laughs> I would take that card over a lot of other cards um, because I don't see the pinhole. Like, look, looking at the card. If you look at the card in front of you, like, look at this card. You're like, if you look at the card in front of you, what comes out to you? It looked perfect. Looked like a perfect card. If you covered yeah. up the grade and you didn't notice the pinhole, obviously, you would assume it was probably an eight or a nine. Like, you would have. Mm guess it was a high grade card yeah um yeah. that to me centering the things that you can see from afar like most and, and the reason i say that i guess is if you look at how my things are displayed like I, I work here like this is my home office right so i'll sit here and during the day i'll glance over at the cards this is how far away i am centering i can tell from this far away a little edge issue or a little corner issue yeah. i can't or you know so yeah. i will always prioritize towards centering because in my enjoyment of the cards, that's the thing I would notice first. Yeah. Yeah. So you're setting up now. Now you used to set up, you took time off, right? Now you're starting to set up now again. Um, what, what kind of challenges like from when you used to do it to now, what kind of challenge do you like new challenges? Are they the same old challenges or they're, they're new ones now? The, the single greatest challenge is the, the obsession with comps. And it's, it sounds funny, but and how much can change in a few years. But between the time I was setting, I set up, you know, all throughout the 2010s. Um, but I stopped when COVID started. I just said, eh, I don't want to risk it. I don't need to be in person at shows. The same time, whatnot, you know, reached out to me very early on. I was one of uh, Loop's very first streaming partners, the first 20 that were on Loop. So I was doing a lot of uh, sales when I wanted to on those platforms really easily and had big audiences. So I didn't need, if I needed to sell a card, I didn't need to do it in person. And that's kind of what shifted for me. It's like, I can run a story sale now and, and, you know, get out of a bunch of cards that I don't want as much as the other ones that I have and, pretty and, quickly. And just to interrupt you, no one can run a story sale like you. <laughs> Thank you. You, you I, can I, make I, a living just doing people's story sales. <laughs> I probably could. But again, it comes, it's not a half-assed approach, right? It's a quality looking experience. A lot of folks, and I appreciate that. A lot of folks reach out to me and, and there have been some copycats of that now where folks are really upping their game in that. And I applaud that. Like, you know, imitation is the best form, form of flattery, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it really, and it, and it helps. You know, I keep my prices in the same location on every slide. So it's very easy to peruse, look through and be able to see like small things like that help a lot. Um, but yeah, like that. So over the last few years, I turned the corner and said, look, I can do much more online, much more easily. I don't have to cart all of this stuff with me, box it up, worry about losing it on the way, worry about someone stealing it at a show. Like it's much more controlled when I'm just doing it through a story sale or popping it on basketballcardguy.com or any of those things like those are digital avenues I can control. The show piece that's so interesting is this obsession with comps. I mean, total obsession. You know, you could have a car. I could have a card that I just bought on eBay last week. And it never came up on eBay for the last three years. Like, 
literally the one I bought is the only comp. And someone will come up to my booth and say, I'll give you 80% of that comp. Knowing full well, the card's numbered out of five. It's number four of five. It's the exact same card. And I can show them I bought it. And yet they want to pay me 20% of that, <laughs> 20% off on that. I think it's the strangest thing. And I had yeah. to pay for a booth. And I'm like, <laughs> like, how does yeah. this work in any sort yeah. of, you know, like scalability in, in the world? And what are they looking to do then with that card? Yeah. Um, I've said it's it's a race to the bottom, this obsession with comps. It reminds me of the 90s. Uh, and you may remember this too, where there was a several events that were going on with Beckett where Beckett's price guide was the way that we all understood what the value of the cards were. But if you went to a show, you would get cards for a percentage off of Beckett. And some booths at like the White Plains, Westchester County show, 50% off book value is what they'd have on a sign. And you go up to their booth, there's a card that's $100 in the latest Beckett, they'd sell it to you for 50. And this is a pattern that went on for a few months where you could buy that $100 card for 50. And unlike the eBay comp world where that now creates a new comp at 50 and then it took a little while for that to like trickle into Beckett. But Beckett was out at shows. Beckett was seeing what things were going for, what they were selling for. Um, And they lowered, they started lowering the prices on those cards. You know, when people talk about junk wax era and all this kind of stuff and and how in the late 90s things went down in value. That was largely because of these things that were happening that were being seen at the shows. And then the the book value came down. And now that $100 card that was selling for $50 from that guy, that vendor, who probably bought it for $25 because he was telling the person, well, if I'm going to buy it, I'm going to sell it at $50. So, you know, now that card is $50 in the book because Beckett noticed that it was selling at $50 regularly. So they adjusted it. And that same vendor is now doing 50% off of that. And so now you're at $25. Yeah. And, and that happened. You probably remember like th- this was happening and it was just it was a race to the bottom. It yeah. was. And and I see it again now with this comping stuff and these people wanting a percentage off of comps like they don't realize that. Yeah, sure. You're I get that you're saying, oh, if you're paying 13 percent in eBay fees, had you sold your exact card on eBay, then you would have only gotten as the vendor 87 percent of that, you know, like, OK, but. But you're but asking- on, the, on, on the opposite end of that, the person who bought that card, right, paid taxes and shipping. So if the card's yep. hundred dollars and if you're in Connecticut, right, it's hundred and six dollars and thirty-five cents, and then Plus another five dollars to ship, you're at a hundred and eleven. You know, now they want to pay now, you eighty. And now somebody wants to give you eighty dollars for that card, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, and yet people are doing it. And, you know, and the, and the repackers are, are the ones swooping in and doing this in volume. Someone coming up to me and saying, hey, I want to give you 80% of the, the latest sale on it is one thing on a single card. Uh, it becomes really tempting to a vendor if someone walks up to your table and says, I'll buy the whole thing at 90%. Now, at a volume play, you feel like oh, that's, that's actually reasonable. You know, like I don't have to go through the efforts of selling all this stuff over the next several months if someone's going to take my whole booth and give me 90% of what the, the current market rate is. And I've seen that happen, you know, at several shows recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that attitude is creating this adjustment. Um, and it's created a new um, crop of kids. Uh, sadly, uh, I say sadly, they may not think that way. Their parents may not think that way. Um, but when I was a kid growing up with this, I enjoyed 
collecting for collecting. I loved having the cards. My enjoyment didn't come from selling them. It came mm-hmm. from collecting them. And yep. sure, I sold cards here or there to go buy other cards. And that that's great. And that was a lot of great experiences. But I think a lot of kids today, they're getting more enjoyment out of selling the card the money. It's than the money. having it. Yeah, they want the money. And yep. so they see these things as a way to get money, like a stock would get you money or anything that you own you know, a piece of. Um, and that, that worries me. You know, I don't, I don't think there's as much longevity in that. Mm. Um, it, because the passion that I have, the 14 year old me and Mount Kisco cards and collectibles, you know, that's still here today, isn't here because I made money back then. It's here because I had cards I loved back then and then I yeah. kept and I still keep and yeah. I still collect. And so that's, that's kind of my kind of general worry of this whole kind of comp craze. Um, I want to break that. I really want to kind of break them and tell you, I'm going to do a video soon. I'm going to put it up on my Instagram. I bought a Kobe Bryant autograph card recently. That was the exact same card that someone bought three weeks earlier on eBay. I bought it on eBay again. So the person who bought it, put it up for sale again. I paid 50% over comps of the exact same card three weeks later. So not a lot of time passing. Kobe's market didn't jump up 50% yeah. in those three weeks, yeah. you know, um, but the card was worth more than what that person paid three weeks earlier. And I believe it was worth more than what I even paid for it. Like I, I the value that I had in my mind of that card was different. And I think we need to look at that again to start saying, would I rather have the card or the money? What is this card worth to me? What money would I put out to own this as a collector? You know, and if we get back to that, that's when the hobby thrives. That's when yeah. people are paying what they feel like they should pay um, and getting the cards they want to get for a price that's reasonable to them. Well, it comes down to bringing the collectors back, right? Exactly. I mean, that 14-year-old kid and and uh, up to the 2000s, the 10s and stuff, most of the people coming to those shows were collectors. They were buying yeah. cards. They were putting them in their collection. Now what has happened since the COVID boom is it's all about money. It's a business. As people are there, people are, are there. Yeah. And, 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 and I say this all the time there, like, I just feel there's not enough collectors out there. You know, when I, when I see a card, so what I PC in my PC, if I see a card and I identify, this is the next card that I want to get. So when that card comes up, I usually, unless somebody's really, really over the top, I'm just, I'm just buying it because you don't see the card that often. It finally popped up and I just buy the card. Uh, This just happened a couple days ago, a card popped up and I bought the card immediately right away. Like I saw the card. I was excited. My wife said, what, what is going on? And I said, I, I just bought this as a, you know, part of a set. And, and I just bought this card. I never thought I would see this card come up. And I, and I just bought the card and immediately the guy messaged me and he said, did I sell that too cheap? That's the first thing he said to me. He said, I just put it up and you bought it immediately. Did I sell it too cheap? Could I could I have held out for more money? And I said, Well, I'll let you, I'll tell you this. You sold that card to a collector, somebody who's excited about that card, and I'm never going to sell that card, right? Yeah. So at least that made him feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's isn't it funny though that that was his mentality immediately, not realizing that you have a saved search and this is something you've been looking for for years. Yeah. You know, and that this is something that you really want and will, will will be great in your collection. I I have a card back here in, in one of my cases that's I can grab it actually. It's kind of special that I had a safe search for years 
And when it came up, it was the same thing. Within minutes, I bought it. Um, and the guy probably thought the same thing about it. How how is how exciting is that when that saves search and 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 nothing when eBay pops up things and it's never the right thing it's always right. something different but then when the card actually comes up the heart it's starts racing. the greatest thing ever yeah no totally so this is the um oh. this is the one that you're you're very familiar with I'm sure uh, the first year of SPX I'm gonna light this closer here yeah that's the ones that had the the, the hollow the Yes. You, so these have the have holograms the, in the background. Let me see if yeah. I can get a good light on this. Uh, with the, oh, there we go. You can see Jordan there smiling. Right, right over there. Um, yeah. So Jordan smiles in the background. He's wearing a black jersey. So this is the this is the one that everyone knows that you you're used to seeing. Yep. But years earlier, I found out that this card existed. It was an error of the craziest type. Like, how does this even happen? You know. So so. Still the Jordan card, still got Jordan on the back. Yeah. Still the Jordan. But then oh, that's not him the hologram. And the hologram is Jerry Stackhouse, who at the time was like the heir apparent. You know, if you, you ask like people like who could be the next Jordan, that yeah. year Jerry Stackhouse was at the top of the list. So the fact that this card exists with Jerry Stackhouse in the background hologram of the Michael Jordan card. There are only two that have ever been found and graded. Um, and then there's one, the one that I originally saw was autographed by Jordan at the camp, which I thought was like, why would you take an error card that is so rare and then have Jordan sign right over Jerry Stackhouse's face? Like <laughs> he's probably, that's, probably like, I, that doesn't belong here. I'm going to cover that one up. <laughs> I was like, what are we doing? Like that's, that's, that's just poor judgment. Unfortunately, yeah. sorry to whoever did that. Like, and, that and you know, I, I'm just wondering if the person who had it signed knew that it was an error card, you know, sometimes they, somebody did along the way because it was up on eBay. I mean, over a decade ago, which is how I found out that the card even existed. And I was like, mm -hmm. Oh man, I need this card. What a weird error because this isn't like you just misprinted something or it's miscut or this is a hologram in the background of a die cut card. Like, how does this get, how does this happen where you have the right back, the wrong, the wrong hologram on the front, but the right front, you know, like, how does that, how does that take yeah. place? Yeah. Um, so that was one of those cases. Like, I think it was, yeah, maybe 12 minutes after the, the card, you know, went up on eBay. I bought it immediately. I bought both. The guy had, he had graded both at the same time. Um, the regular and the, which is, I love that pairing them out too. They're both nine, five gem mints. Um, yeah. But literally, you know, like ends in a seven, three ends in a seven, four sent them in at the same time to get them graded. So that um, was, that was a package deal for two of them. He put them yeah. both of them up together. Wow. I, I got them both together, you know, and that yeah. was a great price too, at the time that I bought them for, I've been offered on just the Jordan $10,000. So on just the, the error one, yeah. um, they don't come up. They're just not around. And it's obviously it's the highest graded one that's out there. Yeah. Um, and one probably, at, probably at this point, if somebody knew what they had, if there was another one and they knew it, it in this point in time, you would have found it. You would have seen it somewhere. Somebody would have posted it on some type of social media, things like that. Yeah. And I looked for years just to people that listed those Jordan cards just to see if there was a Jerry Stackhouse in the background of any of them. Like, I, <laughs> I, I tell you, like, I had the saved search, but then I had my other search that I was daily going through. I obsessed over getting that card um, just because I thought it was such an interesting error. Um, but, yeah, like, it, it stuff like that, that's the beauty of it. 
Um, but yeah. those things like on those kinds of cards, like you don't, it's hard to even tell what the value is. Yeah. And I, and I think nor, so nor do you care. Right. Right. You know, like, right. It, again, it comes down to what are you willing to spend on it? That's what yeah. it, that's what true value is to begin with. Yeah. I, I see, you know, kids today at these shows, I'd say, I'll use the term kids loosely, people younger than me today at these shows um, that freak out if they can't find a comp on something. Like they don't know what to do. They don't have any frame of reference. And if you ask them like, what is it worth to you? They don't know. It's not worth to them anything. It's worth to them if they think they can flip it. And if they don't have a comp to point to that they're getting underneath, then then they feel like, well, how am I going to sell it? How am I going to rationalize what it is? And that's what they say, too. They're like, well, how am I going to sell this if I don't have a comp? And I'm like, well, I'm selling it and I don't have a comp on it. You know, it's a a low pop. I mean, there's only four of them. How often do you expect four four cards in the world? There's only four of these in the world. How often do you expect them to sell? Right. So, yeah. And they'll say, oh, well, let me do you a favor. You know, you're asking 500. I'll give you 200 because I'll be lucky to get that. With no oh, yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, I'll hold on to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll just keep that one for a little bit longer. Yeah. But but that is the yeah, like that is the single biggest change in the last few years. The, look, people looked at eBay comps before, but it wasn't the be all end all. It, yeah. And I think it needs to go back to that notion of like, here's one data point. Here's one marketplace. Look, yeah. eBay back in the late 90s, I joined eBay in 1998. Longtime eBay user. I've done influencer work for eBay actually as well. And they're like, you're the OG basketball guy on, on eBay. Like <laughs> the amount of cards I bought on there and stuff. Crazy. But back in the day, if I think back to 1998 when I was buying cards on eBay, eBay was the wholesale place. That's where you looked at, you looked at that from a standpoint of like, here's a risky place (laughs) that I can buy a card that's not graded, that might be junk, might be fake, might be whatever. I'm going to pay for it with a money order because it wasn't PayPal then. I'm going to pay for it with, or credit card. I'm going to pay for it with a money order and then I'm going to hope, or cash on delivery. Remember that COD is back then, like, (laughs) <laughs> and I'm going to get this and I'm taking a huge risk. And that's where you've got discounted cards because you were taking that risk. And if you were the seller back then, you were just desperate to get cash for said cards that you had. Yeah. So yeah. it was a wholesale place. That's what any vendor, if you talk to them, if you had mentioned eBay, they go, oh yeah, that's a place I, I buy some cards in bulk and hope to score maybe one card out of a lot. That's actually yeah. halfway decent. Now, the fact that that's what's treated as the be all end all market for so many of these people in terms of value, it's befuddling. And if you talk to people at eBay, I think they feel the same way. Like there's a lot of pressure about why is that the value that, that, that gets attached. It's, it's easy data and eBay's made it easy to look things up. And, you know, now with their TerraPeak product, well, TerraPeak when they brought it on and then now they still call it that, but like in seller tools and stuff that they'll give you a way back, look back on some stuff too. You've got things like Card Ladder that do a great job of even just image scanning it. Um, my buddy John, you know, uh, over at, um, at uh, um, I'm going to blank on the name now, but like all of these card scanning tools, um, it's center stage. Like all these card scanning tools just make it so easy to get to that data because the data is easily available. Yep. And so I think it's lazy, I think is honestly where I'm at. Um, a lot of these cards, especially the really tough ones, cards that are numbered out of five or cards with a very low pop. I mean, you know, even a gem mint 10 card 
you get three gem mint 10 cards and one of them is the best out of those three. Yep. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, yep. the, Absolutely. and people, you know, they, if you, the took, if you took all three of those tens and cracked them and sent them all back, two would yep. probably not come back 10. Not come back at yep. 10. And you yep. could look at them with your own two eyes and you could have five different people line up and look at all three of them and all three of them would pick the one same 10 as their favorite out of those three. Like yep. there are just discrepancies within all of this stuff. And the fact that people take the attitude that they can look up a, a comp and make that the be all end all, it, it's just it's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. <laughs> a patch could be totally different on a card. That's my I collect a lot of patch cards with the stitching and everything, not jerseys, but like the full out yeah. patch cards. And they're all different. They're all every one of those is different. Yeah. You know, and so you have to at least and to me, like I a nice patch on a card, I'll pay more than a crappy patch on a card. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. you can't just or multi-color versus just a all one yeah. color. Yeah, exactly. Like that. You know, and and that's why I think it's a data point. Look at that at the comps that you can find as one point, but then you branch off from there and you say, Yeah, but this one is nicer. I'll pay more for that than this. Yeah, that Kobe autograph I got again, like I paid 50% more than the guy did three weeks ago for the exact same car, yeah. you know, because I know it's more valuable than that. <laughs> so. I mean, and me and me as a dealer too, like I going out there and doing this, I've, I've just turned to grading cards now. It's like, it's tough just to go out, like you said, and buy a card because we're all looking at the same comp and we're all basing the percentages off of, so now I've just turned to grading cards and hopefully to find those percentages in getting yeah. a raw card and then having it graded. Yeah. Trying to make it stand out. I mean, that's what people, it, it's, it's funny. My mom, coined this term for me back when I started collecting. And so I had my dad's baseball cards and my mom said, look, those are, those cards are really limited. They've been putting, you know, bike spokes over the years. They've been uh, lost in collections, thrown out by parents who had them in the attic. Like there's been this natural decline of the amount of those cards that exist. So there's a real limitation. My mom said, these card packs that you buy today, back in the 90s, where they have these inserts and these things, she goes, those are artificial limitations. Like, And I, I love that phrase. She's like, they put artificial limitations. You can only get one of these, one per box. That So they're, they're starting off by just making less of them to try and make them more valuable. Yeah. And now you look years later and you got one of ones, <laughs> like the most extreme <laughs> version. You yeah. know, we're only going to yeah. make one. We're not going to wait for, you know, all the other ones to not exist. It's just one of these to start with, um, yeah. you know, and it's true. And like we're in that new world now and grading is that other step where you get, you know, a card that maybe let's say they made a thousand of a particular card, but there's only four gem mint tens. Well, now you've taken that card and you've exactly what you're saying. You've subsectioned that out into its own category, yep. its own space where it's you've artificially limited it more. <laughs> you know, you've yeah. there, there yeah. could be other tens if some of those yeah. raws get graded in the future. Yeah. But right now there aren't. So yeah. there's only four. And and it's interesting because you can look at that. I mean, you can look through the the years. You can go back to the '90s, right? And you look at cards that were graded in the '90s, and you look at those the population count on those, right? And you see, oh, look, this is a you know like a, a gem mint ten, right? And and right. it sells for six or seven dollars, right? And and the pop count of it is maybe three hundred. 
or 400, right? But then you go to, you know, 2021 and you, you get a card where the pop count is like 10,000, right? And the card's selling for like $5,000, you know? It's, yeah, it's, the Luka Doncic was that that one. And and I had the his Prism rookie, and I called that out in, I think it was my first YouTube video for basketball cards back maybe four years ago. Um, I was just starting to notice this spin up uh, where that was going and how people were grading them. And it was, you know, I bought those cards, those prism Luca rookies for 50 cents a piece on eBay. I had two of them. I bought for 50 cents a piece and um, I sold mine for $20 a piece. Cause that was a kind of the standard rate that they were going for at the Plainfield show in Connecticut. Um, the guy who I sold them to wore chief cards. Um, yep. He probably, you know, he yeah, went, he graded probably. them. Um, and he sold each one for $550 a piece. He got gem tens on both of them. Um, you look at that progression and it's just so weird. And it was the point at which that was happening. I was like, this is not natural. This is too far. Like, and then when they went up to two grand and three grand for not even the refractor version, not even the prism, like just the base, it was like, no, no, something's going to give here, you know? And, and I, and I call that, I said, it's like a game of hot potato. Um, yeah. everyone wins throughout the game. You're not a loser until you're the one stuck with a potato at the end of the music when the music ends, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and that's really what it's become. And yeah. we've seen that again and again and again yeah. with a lot and of if, these. And if you're like, if you're a dealer, right, sooner or later, you get stuck with one of those hot potatoes, right? Yep. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And then you can make some potato soup, maybe some French fries, something, yeah. but you're out, you're yeah, out make, a lot of money. Make soup out of Mac Jones, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so I know you have kids, and I know yeah. I, I I saw a video right of your daughter pulling a one of one. Yes. Or was it a Luca card? Yeah, it's um, actually in the case here too. Let me. I'll grab it out. And, and as you're getting it, I'll tell you all these years in the hobby. All these years, the only one of one card I pulled, I pulled about three weeks ago, and it uh-huh. was a, it was a woman's soccer player. Wow. Focuses in there, but yeah, there was a one yeah. of one there on the back, right down there. There it is. Nice. So, are your kids into the hobby? Are they they collecting? Do they have uh, PCs my, of their own? My son collects Pokemon. He's all about that. My daughter is the she she touches upon the pokemon stuff we opened a little bit of the lorcana i think maybe she would get into that um they both enjoy collecting my son enjoys the pokemon stuff a lot neither of them are particularly into sports my my daughter does like the WNBA stuff and the girls soccer stuff she likes anything that the girls are in the sports like so uh, anytime i find that stuff i've been buying it for her and putting it aside and giving her some stuff each day and so Mm -hmm. um she's got a little card collection um but my son's like pretty serious about the pokemon stuff and he's got binders and binders full he's got boxes top loaded he's got a a full drawer full of stuff at this point um a lot of folks had gifted him things early on um dating back you know six seven years ago before pokemon was in a like 
back into like huge popularity. Uh, people would see me at a show and they're like, oh, what's your son collecting? I'm like, oh, he's into Pokemon. And they're like, oh, I got some extra Pokemon here, you know? <laughs> and so he's got some like really nice stuff from like the, their first editions and things, that the, yeah. their initial stuff from the 90s that were just gifted to him, which I think is amazing. Um, he could have an awesome basketball card collection if he was into that, <laughs> but he's not. Maybe he will a great be. great mentor. <laughs> yeah right like i could totally do this but that's the thing like as a dad like i would never pressure my kids into anything like i want them to be themselves i want them to be their you know individual selves yes i get a lot of passion out of this my wife is not into cards in the least you know mm -hmm. and so like i would never force it upon another family member to be like you got to do this it's fun you'll learn how fun it is <laughs> like it's not it's not natural so um my, but my wife, like likes, my, my wife likes opening the packs right yes. so i get you know back a few years ago when i was i started opening up like don russ football and and i think she was probably on the fence i'm like come on open up some packs and then she pulled out a a, a downtown card right and once they pull like a big card it's like Not okay I'm, I'm good at this you know keep the packs coming when you know and it's it's it, and i know how people can get hooked on it quick right because it's it's exciting you're opening these boxes and you know anything could be inside right a yeah. one of one card anything could be inside there so yeah it, it's a little gambling but it's definitely exciting you know well, th for... this was this was incredible because the the luca that she pulled we had gotten a box she picked a pack and i had videoed this which is incredible because it's on my instagram which you saw like yeah she literally picked a pack. She goes, this is my pack. This is the pack that I want. We opened that pack and I could see the one of one stamp um, through the front of it. Like it's down there. It's hard to see now. Yep. If you have light behind it, you probably get it. But, um, you know, I could see the, the, the one of one in there. And that's when I freaked out because like, I'm like, this is a weird color for the clear shots. I don't remember them being like a pink purple which pink is like her favorite color. So it was so fitting that this was the one that she pulled, that the one of one would be the one in her favorite color. Luca, who we had talked about a lot right before that, um, it was incredible. You know, we got offered money for it. And I was like, no, I mean, this is like, it's a one of one that she pulled, you know, like yeah. it's, it's got to yeah. stay in the collection. It's a, it's a better um, memory than a card right now. Yeah. yeah, totally. You know, and that's yeah. so many of these, even if they're a cheap card, um, you know, I always tell people like they cards for me, they, they encapsulate whether it's like a memory of the player, whether it's a memory of like, in this case, pulling the card itself, like having that event, it just brings you back to something, it brings you back to your childhood, you know, like thinking about when you were collecting them, um, the situations around that. So I don't know. They're like little time machines, these cards that, you know, I like to say that as well. Yeah. So, so last thing I'm going to ask you about uh, is your backstage pass collection. How how is that going? I, <laughs> I I've heard you mention that before on some yes. other uh, some other. I got content. so I have to I have to do um, I have to get back. So I made an Instagram for it. I think it's backstage collector is the Instagram name. And so for years I worked in the music industry. I was doing video production, promotion, and things like that. For a lot of artists, um, Maroon 5, Jason Mraz, uh, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber. I mean, like, you name it, like, a lot of big-time artists. Um, I worked with, you know, uh, big radio concerts and stuff, too, like the Jingle Ball tour in New York, Madison Square Garden. I was backstage doing those things. 
So I realized over time, like I was collecting, you'd get you get either a laminate. If you were on a tour for a long period of time, you'd get a called laminates, like the plastic ones that are laminated. Um, but in most cases, you would get a stick-on pass. Whoops, a stick-on pass that's like a um, uh, how to how to best describe. I have a few of them in the room, but like they um, they're like a cloth pass that's printed on in color, um, but then you can write on it and stuff too. So um, those are the most common and. I started collecting them. Anytime I went backstage, I was somewhere like I kept the, the pass afterwards. They were usually dated. Um, and then I started trading tour managers. If I had like an extra one, I would trade a tour manager from another tour that maybe had a pass from something that they worked on. And so over time, I amassed hundreds of these backstage passes. I think, and I don't want to create a market for this really, because it's just not, I don't want to, have to deal with it, but um for as much as people are collecting tickets now to events, yep. they make thousands and thousands of tickets. Like an event in Madison Square Garden, there's thousands of tickets at that to that event. There are very few backstage passes. Yeah. And so and I most think of it, them are digital, right? I mean, the tickets Yeah, most now, of the tickets today are digital. You have to really have my phone. I show up, scan my phone, and walk in. There's no no paper tickets anymore. I had buddies that came in from California to New York for Steph Curry's three point record breaking game. And yep. they had digital tickets and they had to go to the box office and beg to get physical versions printed um, of their tickets. Would, so that would they, they do that? Would they print them they for do. them? They do. Yeah. Wow. Yep. If you, if you're nice enough, they'll do it. Um, and then <laughs> my friends got them signed by Steph, um, you know, months later uh, when, when they were back in California. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, I mean, you can't sign, you're not gonna have someone sign a digital ticket. I mean, that's kind of a weird thing. Yeah, I think there is that aspect though. You're right. Like they're, they're more limited now, or at least they're looked at that way. Um, mm. I think people are, I think there are a lot of tickets from the past that people might have in drawers and stuff and they're saying they would get them graded. Um, but I think backstage passes are a whole other end. A ticket, like a Ticketmaster ticket is very boring. Yes, it it was at the event, or yes, it commemorates that. I get it, but backstage passes like it's an art form. Like these are pieces of art that a band um, either hired an artist to do, or in some cases, they did themselves. Like they came up with the artwork behind it. Mm. So it shows the band's personality. It shows more of the event. It shows a period in time, um, and they're all different. They're different colors in a lot of times. Like if a band goes on a tour they'd have five or 10 different colored passes of the same pass because you didn't want someone from last night's show who had a backstage pass and you wanted there then coming back to tomorrow night's show when you don't want them there, you're already, yeah. you know, overbooked. So they had to do those in, in interesting ways. Um, but I was fascinated by them. And so I have a pretty large connection uh, collection, like a few hundred um, between the ones that I got myself and other ones that I traded for uh, mm. over the years. So I want to do that. Like I said, that backstage collector account, I want to put that on um, some of that stuff there. I think it would be cool to share because yeah. it is another collectible. It's like a card. You could encapsulate it. Um, you could have them authenticated by PSA and stuff. I think Beckett's starting to do them now too. Um, so you could do that similar to cards, but uh, yeah, it is. I didn't even realize that you knew about that, but yeah, it's, it's something yeah. that I, I really yeah. loved. Um, I, I, I heard that. And you know why? Because you know what? 
I know you did a lot with music. And when we, when I first met you and you were talking about all these bands and stuff and I was in awe. So when I was a kid growing up, I mean, one of the things we used to, any concert that came, we used to go to the concerts, right? But back then they would rip the ticket, right? When you'd show up with the ticket, they would rip half the ticket and hand it back to you and you'd go into the venue. So I I have a number of, you know, a good amount of those that I I collected that I used to throw in scrapbooks just to remember more of the concerts, right? So I also used to buy the t-shirts to it so that my kids, you know, all of a sudden one day started going through the closet, like, Oh my God, we need these. And they, they started pulling all the t-shirts out and they still wear them to some of those t-shirts today. Like it yep. all of a sudden became a thing again today to wear these old, you know, concert t-shirts from, from the eighties and nineties. Right. So yeah, it, it, like little things like that. I, I really, I like, I latch onto and, and, and I just think it's neat. I think, you know, the, the, the thought behind it, just holding on to those. And even if you couldn't get it graded and even if, you know, they, they just stayed in, 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 in a box or in a closet somewhere, it's still that memory, right? It's still, totally. you know, you go back and you pull it out and you're like, oh, I remember. And you could probably pull, you could probably reach into a box and pull one out, look what it's on oh, it yeah. and then remember that day. And, and that, that to me is the most, you know, that, that, that that's that's what's all worth right there. I, I that, one, that's where all the value is right there. I have one in particular that, and it's funny because it just it was kind of a full circle thing. There were other events that the event itself was bigger, but like where like our the stuff that happened in the event was bigger. But um, I think one of my favorite ones. I have a talent pass from the MTV VMAs, the Video Music Awards, back in the day. And I was a guest at the VMAs of the band Simple Plan. It was a punk rock band that was doing really well, super popular. Um, I had become real good friends with the lead singer. And so he's like, why don't you come down? We'll we'll get you a pass. You know, like, we'll we'll get you in through the zone. So it was them. Avril Lavigne was there. I ran into her and then a few other people in this one particular event. But that meant a lot to me because... When I was a kid, I wanted to work for MTV. I had friends that worked there. Um, but that was kind of my dream job at the time, thinking about music and video production and all the stuff that I was into. So the idea that a band that I looked up to that I didn't know for like the first two years of their existence until you know I was doing a TV show and things like that around it. But the fact that they invited me as their guest to the VMAs and I have a pass from the MTV VMAs that I was at, like... Mm-hmm. It means a lot. Just again, in that psychological thing, like you pinch yourself, like, is this really happening? Like, yeah, yeah. Is this like my as a life? kid, it was a dream, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so it's, it's incredible. I mean, same thing with Madison Square Garden. There were, I remember when I was in high school, dreaming about going to Jingle Ball at Z100's Jingle Ball with all these big artists. And, and I got lucky. I, I, I had pen paled a guy in the promotions department there over time who actually became part of the Elvis Duran and the morning show years later, but he got me advanced tickets. I got fourth row center tickets at the garden for jingle ball one year. Incredible. Totally opened my eyes to like, this is an amazing way to experience a concert at the garden. So close. And I just set my mind to it. I said, I want to be backstage here at some point. And so years later, as I was going through production and stuff, I worked my way up. I did some work at the, uh, they did a pre-show at Hammerstein Ballroom, which is like across the street from the garden. So they had artists there. I worked with like the Jonas Brothers and people like that at the time at that venue. And then 
finally earned enough trust and showed enough of my work that I've been doing to the head of publicity that she said, look, I'm going to let you back in the garden this year. You're going to come backstage at the garden to do the stuff. And so that's when like Lady Gaga was there and like all these yeah. other people, like that was Lady Gaga's first breakout year, like when her first single came out. Um, and so getting to meet them and be backstage there at that legendary venue that as a kid, like I looked up to, you know, other than MTV, I thought working for Z100 would be amazing too when I was a kid. <laughs> um, you know, and like, so like they're inviting me back here uh, to do my thing. You know, like I had an independent production that I was doing at the time. Like it was crazy, like to think about um, that they liked your work well enough that they'd invite you somewhere so like sacred. Um, yeah. But I feel like that with the basketball stuff now and the sports and, yeah. You know, I'm going to the Hall of Fame inductions every year and and meeting these athletes there. And uh, mm -hmm. a friend of mine got me into the player party at at that stuff. Like this stuff I never would have dreamt of, you mm -hmm. know, um, and even just even just the local shows like I have photo that's on my wall way back there. Me and Paul Pierce at the latest Chantilly show that was from the two of us wearing shades. Um, he and I share a birthday, which I didn't find out until I met him the third time, you know, like <laughs> it, crazy. But again, like. Mm -hmm. Never would I have imagined that yep. I would be able to meet these guys and not just meet them, but work with them, have them remember you, um, you know, make a splash, yeah. uh, make an impact. And that's just that's the coolest thing. Be memorable. Yeah. Just just like everything else you do right in media and everything else you you're, you're memorable. That's the key. You know? that's the key. Yeah. So. Well, thanks for being here today, Jonathan. Ooh, Tell everybody uh, if they want to reach out to you, where they can see you. I know you've got a website. You've got some cards for sale. Tell them everything. Yeah, basketballcardguy.com is my website, and basketballcardguy is my username on Instagram. Those are the two easiest ways to reach out to me. Uh, my email is on the website, but it's just john, J-O-N, at basketballcardguy.com. You can reach out there. Uh, always happy to help fellow collectors if people are, you know, trying to get in to find a particular card. If they're not sure what a card is worth, if they feel like they're getting ripped off, any of that kind of stuff, reach out. I'm more than happy to help. I answer every DM on Instagram. Um, despite the growing following, I'm very accessible on there. And I think it's important, you know, like I do this stuff still as hobby first. I can't stress that enough. Um, so while I do have some cards for sale on my website, it's just a very small fraction of my PC that I've like said to myself, all right, I can let a couple of things go here and there. Um, you know, the majority of my half a million card collection is still very much in my collection <laughs> and, um, and it'll continue to be that way because that's, that's where I get the enjoyment. So. Excellent. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please like definitely subscribe and most importantly, tell a friend and sp spread the word until next time. Be good to yourselves and everyone around you. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Ken. Have a good one. You too.